0: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis on the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry on today's Transfer Podcast. As Man City move back to the top of the table... Are they on course to prove themselves the greatest premier league side in history we ask if it's already time up for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and after the PFA deliver their verdict we give our alternative transfer window team of the year okay we start with the fallout from Wednesday night's 2-0 victory for Manchester City over Manchester United putting Pep Guardiola's men back to the top of the Premier League. It was another terrific performance, especially in the second half from City, Duncan. Are they now playing to prove themselves the greatest Premier League team ever?
1: Well, that's going to be the discussion, Um, I think. I think we've had elements of that discussion already. And if they do manage to um, continue this to the end of the season, win all their games... Um, or even if they don't win all their games and and uh, manage to, to stay ahead of Liverpool, then they'll have achieved something absolutely um, unprecedented, from a certainly from a statistical perspective. Um, they'll have put that uh, record points season, 100-point season from last year, back-to-back um, back with uh, a season very close to 100 points. I think they've scored more goals this season than they did last season I mean they set multiple records last season um, they'll have done it being chased to the finishing line by a very strong Liverpool side so it's different from last season where they their closest contenders were Manchester United and uh, and they had the title one essentially um, by January uh, and we see the real strength of Manchester United and in, in how they're performing this season Um. So yeah, there'll be a lot, lot of arguments along uh, those lines. Um, they will also be, I think, the first team to have defended the Premier League title for 10 years. And, and you should note that when pa- Pep Guardiola was interviewed after winning the, the title last year, the first thing he emphasised was how important it was to see whether this team was capable of retaining the title, how hard it is psychologically, Um, and physically to put back-to-back title um, challenges together and win them both. Uh, And and that was the the marker he was laying down to his players. And they'll have done it coming back from a huge deficit. I mean, there was a period in this season, remember, where uh, most um, observers were saying the title was Liverpool's. Um, And Manchester City have put a sensational run of results together. Not just results, I think performances, a lot of these games that they've won uh, to get themselves back into pole position, they've won them in the first 10 minutes of matches, and, and, and big important games as well. Um, and they've also come through difficult fixtures, such as the Tottenham game last weekend, um, where it's been tight throughout the match, and where one slip could have cost them the points. Um and, and won those as well. So they've shown um, not just the quality in the field that we know they have, they've, they've shown a mental um, strength that uh, plenty of people have questioned whether they would have. They haven't done it yet, but if they do it, then there is a, you know, a genuine question, is this the best Premier League team ever? I think the, the, the counter-argument is you can't do it on points alone. Um, there was a very interesting article by um, uh, Duncan Alexander from Opta last week, where he was talking about um, the the combined points totals of the two top teams in the league, uh, and arguing that um, that Liverpool, you know, would be. The most undeserved losers uh, in history. Essentially, if they didn't win the title, because they 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 put so many points together. But one of the statistics he sh- he he shows from that is, if you look at the combined uh, points total, the top two teams, three of the highest six combined points totals in the history, not just the Premier League, but um, the league in the, the the English top division in total. If you turn it to a three points for a win system, um, have come in these last three seasons. So what that tells me is that this league is becoming um, more polarised between the the top um, two teams uh, than it's ever been before. Um, so the top two teams are getting more points because they are significantly stronger than the rest, um, and therefore to do a you know comparison. To, uh, for Manchester City's achievements against, for example, the Arsenal Invincibles team or the Manchester United um, treble-winning team is difficult because you're not working on the same base. There's a good reason for that. The top teams have got more money than ever. Um, therefore, they've got better players than ever. They, they've got higher wage bills than ever. They've got better resources relative to their peers. Therefore, they can do the kind of things that that Manchester City are doing. And then I think that the other argument you have to say here, although we're, we're talking about the best Premier League team ever, Premier League is in the context of playing in Europe. To be the best Premier League team generally, you have to have a, a European campaign as well. And when we judge teams across a season, we, we judge them not just about how they do in their domestic league, it's how they do in Europe. And that's the big failing of this Manchester City team. And that, for me, would be the argument to say that it's not yet demonstrated itself to be the best um, English football team of the Premier League era because it has been abysmal in the Champions League. Um, You know, as we discussed uh, when they went out, Pep Guardiola's achievements in the Champions League amounted to two knockout wins against FC Basel and Schalke. Who are currently battling relegation in the Bundesliga, so I think until he can pair the dominance that he and the and you know the quality of play that he's created in the Premier League with a proper assault on European football, we can't, for me, say that this is the best team that English football has seen.
2: I think Duncan. Um... You're correct in terms of your um, reference to Champions League as being part of the uh, judgment code of success with regards to any team um, at the very top uh, of their league and also, obviously, um, a team which has assembled uh, the single most expensive squad in the history of the game. But if we narrow that, just for argument's sake, parameter down to simply domestic football, then you know what Manchester City have achieved and what they're doing this season, um, on the back of what they did last season, they are incredibly impressive. Uh, they've now scored, I think it's 157 goals in all competitions this year. Uh, sorry, this current season, which is the most any Premier League site I've ever scored. Um, they're also, I think, uh, more impressive than the displays, more impressive maybe than even um, the points totals, etc. And all the different... Uh, statistical records are setting is that mental strength that they have developed because they are relentless in their pursuit of victory and even on a night like Wednesday when they did not play their best football, when they were without a couple of key players when they were at the home of their more illustrious neighbours, they still pull victory out of the bag in a relatively simple, easy but very Manchester City way, Um, because when you're chasing Liverpool, and remember the Premier League um, leadership in terms of first and second has changed, um, I think, more than 40 times this year alone. And City have almost always been the team chasing Liverpool because Liverpool have been playing first and City second. Um, And that has proven to be a major problem for teams who have been in contention with the Premier League title. Look back at Spurs in the year that Leicester won the title. Probably Spurs' best ever chance, certainly in the modern era, to win um, the, the, the league title. But they couldn't cope with the pressure of playing second. And that hampered them. It's happened to Chelsea as well in pursuit of Premier League title. And it's also happened to Arsenal in pursuit of the Premier League title. But City have managed to maintain their cool, maintain and sustain their way of playing because it's so drilled into them by their manager and being able to keep going and then just simply keep, like a machine, produce results, you know, game after game after game. And yes, it's true, having Champions League competition and games removed from their rota of what they need to um, deal with is probably, and well, we can't say probably, I think it's most definitely helpful in terms of um, how they perform in the Premier League. You still can't take away from them just how efficient they are when they produce performances like they did on Wednesday night at Old Trafford. Remember, this is a, a, a game which, under Jose Mourinho, um, and, uh, with Pep Guardiola, they could have won the title. Uh, they were 2 nil up, and Mourinho's team came back and won 3-2 uh, and postponed City's title celebrations. Now, <clears throat> they had... Everyone certainly of a Liverpool bias, was looking at Old Trafford on Wednesday night as being the chance where they might just slip up and drop two points. Let's just say they were thinking of a draw, which would have left Liverpool one point clear. But instead, they were never in doubt. I mean, United had a couple of chances which were reasonable, but but City produced the best chances. United had one shot on target in the entire game at home against their noisy neighbours. City, on the other hand, were, I thought, commanding, they managed the game well, um, and they produced at the right times to make sure they got the goals they needed to get three points. And that is that really is emblematic of the best team in the country. That's what you need to be, that's what you need to do, and that's how you achieve, and that's what City have done this season.
1: Yeah, I, I should say that earlier in the, in the season, I questioned um, whether they would be able to sustain this to the to the end of the campaign on the back of uh, what Guardiola's teams had done in the past, where they've got um, a history of dropping off uh, in terms of performances towards the tail end of the season. Um, and relating that to their uh, his team's struggles in the Champions League, and you, you have to say they have not dropped off one iota in the Premier League. Um, the the level of focus and level of performance has been impeccable. Um, so you have to—he's he's demonstrated that he's capable of getting a team, um, at least to this stage. Three more games to go, but he's, he's demonstrating of getting a team to this stage and and pushing a Liverpool side who, as we've said, have had significant advantages in. In this title race, they've had you know eight points given to them by opposition goalkeepers. They've had a lot of refereeing decisions in their favour. Their points total, I think, is artificial um, for the, the quality of the play they've demonstrated. I think any neutral observer would say Manchester City are by some margin the better football team. The two um, have been a more dominant team, but still they're neck and neck. and And City have managed to overcome what can I think can can. Can finish teams is seeing your opponents um, continually getting fortunate results or repeatedly getting fortunate results when you think you're going to put a, a, a margin between yourselves and them. Uh, they've watched that and responded every time. Um, and as you say, the, they didn't play to their full abilities against Manchester United, but they still went to Old Trafford and, and won comfortably. And you know, the last half hour of that game, was, um, there was no doubt what the outcome of the result was was going to be. And they could basically rest on the ball and uh, preserve energy for the next test, which is Burnley away on, on Sunday.
0: What about Manchester United, Ian? It was a pretty dis- disappointing performance and, of course, result uh, overall, especially when United have so much to play for. Are they a team that's just <laughs> totally bereft of confidence or is there something, as we've discussed previously... Deeper wrong with this squad? Oh, I think it runs much deeper than confidence, Johnny. There's no doubt
2: about that. Um, there are players in that team, in that squad, who are not fully committed to the cause. They are not motivated. They are not fit enough. Um, they don't do the, the very basics. Um, for those of you who didn't see it and those of you who did, I applaud <clears throat> former captain Roy Keane for calling them out during the coverage on television on Wednesday night. Um, he used two phrases which I think were absolutely applicable and true. One was cheating the club. Another was bluffers. Too many bluffers to get United back to the very
0: top. Um, All that was missing, Ian, was a take that, you Are we bleeping that out, are we? <laughs> I think we might have to. Uh, Johnny, the
2: ball was there. At least I think it was. <laughs> <laughs> I think Keane called it perfectly. And it was slightly embarrassing because Gary Neville was kind of someone who has been a very, very strident critic of Manchester United. Not of managers. You have to give him credit that he didn't criticise Mourinho um, a lot of the time. He criticised the players. And, but obviously, Oligo Sanchar is one of their own. And and this, you know, the Omerta rule of the dressing room is you never shoot one of your own. So he is at length to protect Solskjaer, even though Solskjaer has made basic mistakes in tactics and team selection. Um, however, if we put that to one side, for the moment at least anyway, it's certainly the case there are too many players who are not trying hard enough, who are effectively just taking their very, very lucrative salaries and deciding that, It's enough just to be a Manchester United player and hope rather than work to get Champions League football or try and win competitions. And that's not the way of the tradition nor the philosophy of Manchester United Football Club. You always play to win, regardless of what competition you're in, regardless of um, what your status is regarding your position in that competition at any time. You play to win. And when you look at the first goal conceded, um, or against Manchester City, you see Paul Pogba jogging, jogging at half pace when he sees in front of him Bernardo Silva, one of the players of the season. One, a player who can punish you with one touch or one kick of the ball. And Pogba's just watching. Well, Luke Shaw, who, by the way, looked to me like a kind of bloke you would meet at half past three in a kebab shop in Southampton somewhere. <laughs> Um, on on Wednesday night, he did. He just looked overweight. He looked underplayed. <clears throat> he, you know, he was sweating after the first five minutes. He was. He's just stopped.
0: big boned, Ian, isn't he?
2: Uh, either that, he's got one of those. <laughs> one that that. Um, what's that symptom called? Greedy.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> bleeping that one out as well. Well anyway, known in these circles, mate.
2: <laughs> in, <laughs> indeed, indeed. So uh, he was slow. Silva was quick. The goal was inevitable. But Pogba should have been doubling up on that. He saw the danger. If he'd even just sprinted, because he's got a good burst of explosive pace, Pogba, he could at least put Bernardo Silva off of the shot. And he didn't. And there's an inevitability now, I think, amongst some Manchester United players in the way that they behave on the pitch. You know, their their body language is languid, it's lugubrious. Yet they don't try. They just, they just like run around or jog around and they don't do the things which are hard. Track back, close space, make blocks, try and intervene on tackles. They just don't. They're not and don't do it. And you cannot play at that level and think you're going to win a game against Manchester City if you don't do the job properly. And I think Roy Keane was absolutely right to call them out in the way he did. Um, you know, Gary Neville was trying to make an excuse for them saying that, oh, well, you know, <clears throat> I've seen Pet Guardiola's teams for 10 years. This is what they do to you. They run you off the pitch and then you're really tired. And as someone else, I think it was Graham Sooners, pointed out, what, they're tired after 50 minutes? Are you serious? That, that This is what Manchester United have become, that they're tired after 50 minutes. And, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, and, and Duncan, you can expand on this, but it took Jose Mourinho... Well, you reckon Doug in two and a half years, I would say certainly the months of his last of his third year tenure. It took him at least five months to call the players out because he'd done everything he possibly could in house and in the dressing room to motivate them and get them playing. But eventually he just thought, you know what, I cannot make excuses for these guys anymore. It's taken all the good of Solskjaer three weeks to do this. Now, yes, there's definitely something rotten in the state of Old Trafford, no doubt about that. And in that squad and in that changing room, there are people in there who are bad influencers, negative influencers, and people who need to be purged and get, get out of that club in order to at least get something better out the players that remain. But the bottom line is, you're a professional footballer. You're in a privileged position of being paid millions and millions of pounds to perform for your club. And instead, you just look at it and think, you know what, I can't be bothered today. Or, you know, this is a lost cause, there's no point in me chasing it. That's that's disgusting, absolutely disgusting. And we spoke in the podcast before about certain influences in dressing rooms, especially one in Real Madrid um, with Sergio Ramos and a certain golfer. And and we called them out. And we're calling Man United out now as well because this is something which, if they're going to arrest this continuing demise and failure of one of the biggest football clubs in the world, then it needs strong leadership, both at board level and by the manager. To root out the problems and then try and rebuild. And in my opinion, there is no strength and certainly not the right amount of authority either in the boardroom or with the man- current manager to be able to do that.
0: What a monologue. That's right up there with four square and seven years ago. We had Hamlet references. We had the word lugubrious, which I don't even know what it means. Don't say we're not the highbrow alternative. Duncan, <laughs> match that.
1: you know I can't match that Johnny (laughs) not even for Captain Duck can I match that Um, look I think Manchester United are in a worse place than they were um, two and a half years ago I think they're in a worse place than they were uh, at the start of this season I think the squad is a mess Um, and I think the the board are out of their depth the chief executive doesn't know what he's doing the club's structure is inefficient and self-destructive. All of these things have to change. I think they have a serious problem on top of that because they now have the wrong man in charge of the football team. Um, sorry to have to say that. And I think it's fascinating that, um, that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has overseen the worst run of results at Manchester United in over half a century. Seven defeats in nine games. And remember the two games he won, were um, marginal victories at home to Watford and West Ham, where by most accounts, I mean by almost every account, Watford and West Ham were the better team in both of those matches. So you could have been looking at nine in nine. Um, last three games they've been beaten 8-0. They've had two shots on target from open play in those games. I mean, you can go through the statistics. They're horrendous. The performances are also horrendous. I might be wrong. But Of that big class of ninety-two um, commentators that spend a lot of time in the media, I don't think I've heard a single word of criticism of the manager during that period. Not one. And it's and the the things you could criticise him over are many selections, tactical decisions, substitutions. I mean, the the, the Manchester derby he goes into the Manchester derby. This is the man telling us that Manchester United have to go back to their way of playing and they have to play with wingers and they have to attack. He goes in with a 5-3-1-1 and he doesn't change that formation until they've been two goals down for 20 minutes (laughs) at home when they have to get points uh, to try and have a chance of of Champions League qualification. If any other manager in Manchester United's history had done that, they would have been um, taken to pieces by the post-match commentators. But I didn't hear any criticism of his tactics, any criticism of substitutions. I heard praise for the way he got the players running at the start of the match. Um, and from what I can gather, uh, that, and i point you here to um, an article that Mark Ogden, who is a, a journalist with very good connections uh, at Old Trafford and always been um, reliable in his, his stories in the club, he wrote a piece saying that the defeat against Everton had strength in Solskjaer's hand at the club because the Glazers uh, now felt that they had to um, trust in him and give him the authority to turn the club inside out, change matters, um, and then it, it might take the full three years of the contract they would given him for them to see results. That strikes me as uh, chasing your losses. I think they're, I think if their calculation is that things have to fundamentally change, they're right. But if their calculation is that the man um, to be the manager and to lead that change is the guy who's just delivered the worst set of results in over half a century, I think you can only see that going one way. Um, and I, I, I don't see it as a surprise that this has happened to Solskjaer because... He's inherited a very difficult position. Yes, um, he has inherited a very difficult position. It's true, but the bit, but you can compare his results to the previous managers, and he and he comes out as the worst. Why does he come out as the worst? Even even with this groundswell of support that he has, the goodwill behind him, with the way he got the players on side at the start, um, you know, buttered them up, and made them believe in themselves, and told them they could play free, and got got the results to begin with. And then they nosedive. Why? Because he's not good enough as to be the manager of Manchester United. And, it's, and his curriculum vitae tells you that. He's been a manager for almost nine years. His managerial career is Norway, Molde, Cardiff City, relegated inside half a season, sacked inside a year, back to Molde, and then Manchester United. There's an obvious outlier there. There's only one reason why he is manager of Manchester United at present. And that's because of his history at the club uh, and his his status and his popularity with the fans um, and his relationship with with key individuals at the club. But that doesn't none of that makes him properly capable of managing this situation and turning him into winners again. Yes, he understands the club. Yes, he loves the club. No question about it from that perspective ideal appointment. He can talk about the way the club should be. He can talk about the way the club was. He can say the right things in press conferences, which he generally does, generally has been been doing. But that doesn't give him the tools to turn this situation around and manage well. And that has been exhibited in the games they've played in, the re- in recent months. And and unfortunately, if Manchester United want to do this root and branch um, Overhaul of the club. If they want to try and fix the problems that have been caused in the Woodward era, they're going to have to bite the bullet and change the manager before too long because giving him a summer where he's allowed to say on transfer market decisions, I do not see significantly helping the situation. Giving him the preseason that he says will sort out the fitness problems. Again, I don't see that significantly solving the situation because he's been in charge of this team for four months and he oversaw um, a rash of muscular injuries and, and this drop off in physical performance when, when he's been emphasizing the fact that he wants the team to outrun opponents. So that, that's down to him. Um, and I don't see that he has the, um, the experience as a manager. the abilities as a manager to fix this situation and it it doesn't help Manchester United that as Ian says that Omerta of the class of 92 are not prepared to criticise their former teammate, even though at least some of them must see the mistakes he's been making as a manager.
2: I I do find it incredible as well Duncan that this is the worst run of form Manchester United have suffered since 1962 Pitt Guardiola was the first manager to achieve three wins at Old Trafford consecutively. And yet, no one is questioning Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And it's not just the omerta of the former players. The media seem to be fairly mute as well. Um, now, is it because Ole's charm offensive has been successful in terms of his um, you know he's willing to play the game. For instance, he started the old Fergie mind games, didn't he? About the tactical fouling, which of course we have yeah. covered extensively on the Transfer Window podcast. And he was right to make that. question. I suspect all he yeah. listened to the podcast. Uh, no, you're right. You're right.
1: He, he was. That was clever, and it, it was also done unprovoked. He wasn't questioned. He threw that one in, which is a very, um, actually a very Mourinho or Ferguson like Ferguson thing. thing. I
2: think. And, and also, wasn't it funny that? all of a sudden Manchester City were briefing, saying that that they were disappointed that he hadn't been advised of the, the statistics on fouling before he gave those remarks. And every single <laughs> newspaper and media outlet carried that, saying, oh, yeah, it was very disappointing, you know, because let's face it, if you've been told that City were the least fouling team in the league, then he might not have been so brazen. That wasn't the point. The point was tactical fouling. Now, so what I'm saying is... Is it just that Ole Solskjaer still has the goodwill in general in terms of um, those who are the critics? Although I go back to um, Martin Samuel, the chief sports writer of the Daily Mail, who called out three weeks ago and said that Solskjaer's appointment looked like no more than sentimental bunkum um, with regards to what you've explained, Duncan, that his CV says why is this guy the Manchester United manager for the next three years? Um, look, Solskjaer may prove us all wrong yet, but my point is that having suffered seven defeats in nine games, most Manchester United managers would at least be under scrutiny if not already sacked. So why is it that all these different? Except that they already sacked one very good manager because they thought that he couldn't achieve success. And now they've appointed one who's very short on either success or experience at this level, and it's like on a, on a wing and a prayer for Ed Woodward and for the board. And when it's mentioned that oh, it'll take the full three years of his contract to get United back on track, I'm not quite sure that this is the guy to, to do that. And I think United will be reconsidering this position quite soon.
1: Yeah, look, I think just, I just refer our listeners back to what we were saying at the time, Solskjaer was brought in as caretaker and when he started to have good results, we we were saying, look, that this is actually a problem for Manchester United long term because his appointment is the easy one for the Glazers to make. He is cheap. He's popular with the supporters. He will not demand a lot in the transfer market. He allows them to carry on um, in the fashion that they've been running the club uh, with their uh, focus on profits rather than on field performance. That's why he's in the job. In terms of that's why the, the, this bad decision was made to give him uh, to make him a permanent appointment before the end of the season, before they'd even seen the outcome of of uh, of a whole half season in situ and whether he could qualify them for the Champions League. Um, and. It just, that again, reiterates the, the fundamental problem Manchester United have, is they, there is a lack of um, quality uh, and competence throughout the club in all departments. Um, and maybe, maybe the Glazers will look at this now if they get some external criticism, questioning Solskjaer and think, right, OK, actually, we have to reconsider if we're going to do this written branch review. But I don't think they will. It sounds like, uh, it sounds like from what they're briefing uh, that the argument is going to be uh, we have to put our faith in one man and we've, we've chosen a man who, um, who knows Manchester United um, intimately uh, and, and we're going to back him and, and, and bank on him solving these problems uh, regardless of, of what he displays on the field of play um, since he's been appointed permanent manager.
0: Okay, it's time for the quickfire round now, and this week we're going to have a look at the PFA Team of the Year, which has been released, and see if we here at the transfer window agree with the choices of the players. Uh, Now, their team is Ederson and Goal, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Virgil van Dijk, Emmerich Laporte, Andrew Robertson. Fernandinho, rather surprisingly perhaps Paul Pogba, we can get into that in a bit more detail, Um, Bernardo Silva, Raheem Sterling, Kun and Sadio Mane, which that won't be a surprise to anyone who's been listening to Ian McGarry over the last few weeks. Right, we'll start with Ederson. Duncan, is he the guy you would have picked as your number one keeper? I think it's very tight between
1: Ederson and Alisson, I think. If the decision had been made in the first half of the season, then Alisson would definitely have won it. Um, But I think his performances have dropped off quite a lot uh, in the second half. Um, He's looked quite nervous um, under this pressure of the title race. He's made quite a lot of mistakes, um, most of which haven't been capitalised on by opponents. Um, So he's kind of got away with it. he, you know, a big mistake at Fulham that was capitalised on and then he got bailed out by the Fulham goalkeeper whereas Ederson I think has gone the other way I mean Ederson has been good for the first half of the season I think he's been exceptional for the second half of the season he's, he's actually um, looked extremely calm under pressure and come up with some of his top performances in big games I mean, the, the, obviously the Tottenham uh, game last weekend is a, a great example of that so I think I would just go Go along with the players and say Ederson just pips
2: Allison on this one. Um, I'd agree with Duncan on that one, Johnny. Um, I would like to say Allison because he's brought a kind of um, bit of uh, difference and certainly a load of character into the Premier League this season. <clears throat> um, he does do a little risky stuff now and again, but um, you know, uh, so far has really cost Liverpool anything um, with regards to. Uh, crucial moments, so uh, I would like to see um, Alisson, but I I, I do think that Ederson has upped his game uh, since January and uh, eclipsed him as the best goalkeeper in the Premier League, so in terms of team of the year, yeah, Ederson.
0: So we're going to move on to full-back, right-back, with Trent Alexander-Arnold. Yeah, I think there's a very
2: good case for Trent Alexander-Arnold because he um, combines the modern um, full-back essential uh, qualities of being able to um, tackle and get forward and overlap, uh, get crosses in, produce a final ball, um, also reads the game well, has pace, which allows him to um, recover space uh, when and if uh, he's beaten on a counter-attack. There are very few right-backs, to be fair, um, who can compete with him. This season for for the position in the PFA Team of the Year, uh, in the past uh, I would have thought that uh, Dave piliqueta would always have you know been the the first choice, but um, he's not had a good season and it's been quite intermittent for him. So I, I guess I wouldn't disagree with Alexander Arnold, although I I think this is one of the the weaker, uh, or uh, not the weaker but certainly the less kind of outstanding positions of the season uh, of which um, Alexander. Arnold probably comes top.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you, and I would say this is the weakest um, of the 11 positions in the team. Um, I think Alexander Arnold looks better um, than he is defensively because Liverpool are such a strong team defensively now and Klopp has set them up in quite a defensive fashion in midfield for most of the season so it flatters them somewhat but he is a great attacking right back I think the the candidate if you were to choose one um, as an alternative would be Aaron Wan-Bissaka who I think is a better defender um, even at this stage early stage in his career than Alexander Arnold but you know, given overall performances, given where the team are, and given his attacking qualities, I think I can go with the PFA selection here.
0: Okay, we're going to move to centre-back and Virgil van Dijk seems a fairly straightforward one to agree on.
1: Yeah, I, he has to be. I mean, he's a candidate for player of the year, so he has to be in as the as the best centre-back in the division. He has been the best centre-back in the division.
0: What about the other guy, Emmerich Laporte, where I, I think there may be a little bit more discussion?
1: Definitely not on my team of the year. Laporte. I don't like him as a defender um, I think he relies on last-ditch tackles quite often his pace to dig him out of problems he's very good um, exceptional passer of the ball exceptional creative defender um, but he has too many mistakes in him um, both in terms of uh, making defensive errors in his distribution occasionally um, very good at, at creating attacks but also creates opportunities for the uh, the opponents by um, being a bit headstrong at times and positionally not as good as he should be. Um, I'm going to go here um, for someone who I doubt got many votes in the PFA award but I think has been an exceptional centre-back in the Premier League this season. I'm going to go for Willie Bolly
2: of Wolves. Mm, okay, I like that we, when we did our um, esoteric Combined Leicester-Wolves eleven of a few weeks ago, um, our listeners will note that I chose Willie Bolly as well. Um, and I agree with Duncan on <clears throat> Laporte's uh, deficiencies defensively. Uh, he is primarily a footballer rather than a defender. Um, Pep Guardiola bought him and has entrusted him with the duty of um, playing the ball out from the back, uh, distributing uh, possession in both a safe but also um, a very militarised fashion, which is the Guardiola way um, of keeping possession. Um, I'm going to go a little bit old school with this, uh, with my choice. I'm going to go for Harry Maguire of Leicester City, um, who, who I think uh, combines both but is chiefly um, a blocking defender, someone who you can rely upon at set pieces, Someone who you know is going to give you everything, both in the air and on the ground. But also has his moments when it comes to hitting the old 45, 50-yard quarterback pass to the flanks, Because Leicester um, have played quite direct at times during the season, before they changed manager and afterwards. And so um, for me, I'd say Maguire could, should be a, a decent contender there. Yeah, and he's slower than a week in the jail. I'd rather spend a week in a jail with Harry McGuire than
0: I wouldn't find the Laporte. Let's not explore that any further. Right, base of that midfield, Fernandinho. Oh no, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. I'm forgetting Scotland's own Andy Robertson. But I don't think there's going to be a lot of disagreement there.
1: Yeah, I think, I think Robertson's been the best left back in the division. Um, I think probably the contender would be Lucas Dinia at Everton. who's had a very good season and got better throughout it, put some very good um, statistics together from that position. But I think Robertson uh, is some distance ahead of him. So, again, the PFA have got that one right, in my view.
0: Ian, you're a big Celtic man. Does it surprise you that given many people up here in Scotland think Andy Robertson isn't even the best left-back from Scotland, that the Celtic man hasn't ended up with a transfer to the Premier League?
2: Um, yes, that I would agree with that. Johnny, um, I think that's mostly because Kieran Tierney, the man in question, um, has not uh, pursued a a move to to the English Premier League. From his own personal point of view, he wants to stay at Celtic. Uh, I think that may or may not change in the summer because he has no shortage of offers with regards to changing club. um, And also yeah look I think we've seen it in um in Scotland games haven't we in matches where there's been this dreadful kind of you know conundrum do I pick Robertson or do I pick Tierney um Tierney is clearly very very good at both defending and attacking Robertson I think is probably sixty forty in favor of attacking um whereas Tierney I think is fifty fifty which is a very unusual um equality in terms of the, the um the way that he can play the game. So, uh, given that he's not playing in the in the in the PL, then we've got to say, he have got to rule him out of the PFC. <laughs> <year>. I just want <laughs> to chuck in there. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I agree. I agree with you, Johnny, but pure, pure, purely on a technicality. <laughs> <laughs> I think Robertson wins this one.
0: Fair dudes. And uh, sitting midfield position, we have Fernandinho, who, of course, was absolutely terrific on Wednesday night. Duncan, do you, do you see anyone else being able to usurp him in that position?
1: He was terrific, but it has to be said that when he came off the pitch, that was when um, Manchester City became a better attacking force because they've got Leroy Zani on. But I don't think that was down to Fernandinho. I think that was just down to Gundogan.
0: You're going to need to explain something to me here. I'm going to stop you because the pronunciation of Sani is different. So explain the Zani and Sani argument. Settle it once and for all.
1: Um, I believe it's Zani is how it's pronounced.
0: You're always good at these things, so I trust you. I'm going to trust you on that. I'm going to start calling it Zani, but if people quietly mock me here in Scotland, it's on you, buddy.
1: Okay. I don't.
0: I don't. use being quietly
2: mocked. The fact you have twelve ducks following you everywhere <laughs> is probably a much much bigger reason to mock you.
0: Zanny it is.
1: But on Fernandinho, yeah, I think I think you have to choose him as the best-holding midfielder, and I think that is another triumph for the genius that is Maurizio Sarri-Bollocks, who has um, eliminated the obvious contender for best-holding midfielder in the Premier League by refusing to select him there at all. And it would be fascinating to see the PFA ballots to see if Jorginho, um, who Sarri believes is the best-holding midfielder in the Premier League, managed to accumulate even a single vote.
2: I I believe he got less than 10.
0: Can he vote for his,
2: himself? Sources. You're not allowed to vote for yourself or anyone right. else in your team. But I do think I agree with Duncan just to, just to chime in on the Fernandinho debate. Um, he's obviously not at the best run of games lately. Um, his injury has precluded him from, um, from being involved in more than two of the last 13, I think, for Manchester City. But it just shows you how key he is that uh, Guardiola would rather risk... Matches by playing a semi-fit or almost fit Fernandinho, to um, keeping him until he is fully fit and playing in these crucial matches like he did last night. Not sure, obviously, what the injury, the extent of that is, that may well uh, exclude him from the um, the remaining few matches. But he has been instrumental, and one of the uh, kind of uh, I guess accolades which could be placed at Fernandinho. Uh, for his performances, not just this season, but you know, in previous seasons from Manchester City as well, is that they are finding it so so difficult to find a long-term replacement for him, and are going through currently in terms of their transfer policy. I'm told around eight different targets um, to define which one is the best person to come in and learn from Fernandinho in the sort of maybe the two years he has left. Um, and then become Fernandinho in the future. So, Johnny, um, lead, lead, lead us to
0: the red herring. Take yes. Us to the,
2: take us to the river. Yes. Wash us in the water.
0: I'd rather not, but where I will take you is to the name Mr. Paul Pogba.
2: If this was the PFA sulking team of the year, then Pogba would get all 10 outfield places. He might even be goalkeeper as well, actually. Um, or indeed, if it was the basketball PFA team of the year, he would get all 11 places, even though. Um, I'm led to believe that basketball doesn't have 11 players on the hard court at any one time. So um, I'm just going to laugh at that. Uh, I think it's disgraceful. I think it's um, a reflection on Pogba's fame and reputation rather than on his um, performances for Manchester United.
0: It's Um, also an insult to Jimmy Milner.
2: Oh, I was coming to that. You've Oh, sorry. I'll, just, I'll cut that. James I'll cut Milner that. is my choice, clearly, oh. <laughs> to replace Paul Pogba in the holding midfielder role.
0: Sorry, I should have
2: obviously. <laughs> Bloody hell, Johnny! You should know me better by now.
0: I know. I know.
2: <laughs> no, you can just well, you can leave the dialogue in. I don't mind. But James <laughs> Milner, for me, is is definitely the man to replace Pogba. Much more reliable. Scores goals. Doesn't like take three days to do a run up for a penalty, just slots it in the bottom corner every single time he's asked. And, um, you know, is probably the most consistent midfielder in the Premier League when asked to play in that position. So for me, it's it's, a, you know, replacing the only non city stroke Liverpool player in the PFA's team of the year uh, is an obvious one for me, which is I replace him with a Liverpool player, and that is King James Milner.
0: The obvious question here Duncan is has Ian been on the space cakes?
1: <laughs> no, he's just just demonstrating once again that he's uh, he's Jimmy Milner's agent. Um, <laughs> yeah. and and talking of agents what we should say here is congratulations to Mino Raiola who has demonstrated his ability as one of the top agents in the world by managing to rig the ballot of the PFA um team of the year awards because that is the only credible explanation how Paul Pogba um, was voted as one of the three best midfielders and one of the eleven best players in the Premier League. The Pizzaman was the man who won it. Yeah.
2: Well, from one. Continue- so oh, hang on, Duncan? Who do you replace him with? You, you've obviously. You know, I, replace him. I,
1: I don't replace him with Jimmy Milner. I'm afraid because oh, I
2: don't think you can
1: you can have substitutes in your in your team of the year. Um, I think I think there's two candidates for me here. Um, one would be Jean Moutinho, who I think has, um, in his first season in the Premier League, uh, demonstrated just what uh, a good, um, competent, skillful um, leader, midfielder he is. And the other one, I think I would give it to um, for his track record in the Premier League over several seasons. And, and so the added creativity he has is Christian Eriksen. Um, so between one of those two, I think I go for Eriksen, just Ed and Moutinho.
0: Well, from a name that's caused consternation to one that I suspect will be agreed upon, and that is Bernardo Silva. Any discussion around this, Ian? Yes. Um, Bernardo he's Silva going to does pick
2: James Milner again. Bernardo, <laughs> does not, Bernardo <laughs> Silva does not belong in the because they've chosen a four-three-three. We should point out that mm-hmm. they've chosen a four-three-three formation, and Bernardo has been has been put in the three central midfielders. And I don't agree with that. I think his best position is playing in the three attacking midfielders. So I would choose his half-brother David Silva and put him into the midfield three rather than Bernardo. Um, and you can obviously see where that leads wherever you want. But um, I think David Silva has been outstanding. I know that he his actual game time has been reduced this season for varying reasons. But even, last, uh, even uh, in the game against Manchester United on Wednesday night, He showed just how valuable he is in the way that he threads balls so accurately and uh, like he's threading the needle. And um, I think for me, you know, he's got to be the team of the year because he has been one of the key players for Manchester City uh, when he's played. Um, As I said, despite the fact his game time has been limited.
1: I see what you're saying, Ian. Um, I go with Bernardo in this position because he has filled it for most of the season for Manchester City because of De Bruyne's injury. Um, he did play there at Monaco. He's equally capable in both roles and I think the the forwards are so good it makes sense to shift them back into midfield there. Bernardo, for me, is a very, very strong candidate for player of the year. Um, he's not as flashy, doesn't get the same press as Van Dijk and Raheem Sterling, but... Um, just exceptional time and time again, and also delivering in key moments as he did it in the Manchester United game with exceptional um, skill and invention. And just, a, I just love watching him as a player, as I said um, earlier in the week. Um, David Silva, yeah, I'm with you normally, but I don't think he's uh, he's been as as good. This season. I think he's dropped off a bit. I think um I think that let that be a warning to you. The bald David Silva is much better than the um the B-wigged um David Silva we have this season.
0: Well, uh no surprise that Duncan uh, feels that way. Um but uh we shall move on regardless. And the right wing position where Raheem Sterling has been picked. Um do you think, Ian, that there is uh, any debate about that, given his fantastic form for clubbing country? Um, Yes and no. And this is where
2: my um, variation on the PFA Team of the Year um, sort of transfers itself, if you like. I'd have Bernardo Silva on the right side of the three um, in order to include David Silva in the midfield three. So therefore, I I would um, facilitate and place um, Ryan Sterling somewhere else. Uh, which we'll come on to, I guess. So my choice on the right side of the attacking three would be Bernardo because of his ingenuity, because of the way he um, reads and passes. And we saw a perfect example of that in the way he scored a goal from that position uh, at Old Trafford on Wednesday night. So um, I'm going to leave it to Duncan to uh, take up the slack on this one.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think you have obviously you have to have Raheem Sterling in the team. I think um, we've got a lot of very good forwards to choose from. Um, and therefore, it makes sense to play him on the right side of the attack. Obviously, the controversy is that it, um, it knocks or potentially knocks Mo Salah out of the team. Um, I think if I'd been picking Mo Salah, which I'm not going to, because I um, haven't been impressed with his form for a, a significant chunk of the season, I would have him as the as a number nine or false nine. I think that's his best performance was for Liverpool this season was when he was playing there in a four two three one. But um, given the quality of the forwards that are there to choose from, I think Sterling on the right wing makes sense and the, and the PFA have got this one right.
0: Ian, we know your feelings on Sadio Mane, so unless you have changed them, which I would be surprised by, I'm going to assume you're going to go along with that.
2: Sadio Mane, total legend. Um, I think he's come through this season where um, Salah has, uh, I wouldn't say disappointed because he's obviously a joint top scorer, but hasn't been the same player he was last year in terms of influence. Mane has scored many, many a crucial goal, a winning goal um, for Liverpool. So absolutely needs to be in that team, uh, and I'm pleased that he's you know made it. And you know as much as we've talked about um, either Bernardo or Virgil Van Dijk, um, and indeed uh, Ryan Sterling being player of the year. My vote goes to um, Sadio Mani.
1: This is this is the difficult one for me, and I don't, I'm not sure there is a right choice. But uh, I've got Mani, um, Sun Young-min, or Eden Hazard on the left wing, um, and I, I can't leave Eden Hazard out of the team um, because he is one of the exceptional players in the division. Um, he's able to win matches by himself. He's been playing for an appalling team, badly set up, and still put up superb numbers. Um, So I think on that basis, he wins it for me ahead of Manny, who's who's been playing in a much more benign environment um, and doesn't have that absolute range of invention that um, that Eden Hazard has. So I'm going to go for Eden Hazard here.
0: And up top, the PFA have gone for Sergio Aguero. Ian, do you agree with that selection? Well, here we go. This is the
2: um you know my difference of opinion with the PFA. I would put Ryan Sterling as the top, mm. and number nine, um, I think we all know what Sergio Guerrero offers and what he's produced, et cetera, et etc. But my personal belief is that when Sterling's played through the middle this season, he's been at his most um effective, and certainly in terms of goal scoring, um he just he defies what defenders <clears throat> try to bump against him. Uh, and his ability to do so produces the kind of goals that um, take Manchester City to the brink of a treble, where they are. Um, as much as Aguero has um, through the years been an amazing um, servant to Manchester City, I think uh, uh, Sterling's the future, and that's why I would I would switch in on a four three three and have Sterling at the point.
1: Yeah, I I think you know Aguero's had a superb season. He's had his best season for Pep Guardiola. You can see that the Guardiola, who who wanted to sell Aguero after his first season at club, and had to be, um, you know, basically the, the the club's hierarchy. Abu Dhabi went to him and said, "Can you find a way to keep this man in our, in in your team? Because we do not want to sell. Him. He's so popular with the club. Uh, we value him." Um, and Guardiola compromised and kept him, and he's now clear first choice for Guardiola, which shows. Um, what he's sacrificed as a player, I think, and how he's changed as a player to become that. He's Obviously, he's had um, uh, better fitness after um, uh, surgical intervention this season. He's credited that with playing better. But uh, he, uh, he still, for me, is not that all-round striker in the modern game. Um, and I, I think San Xiong Ming has had a sensational season um he scored 20 goals in 44 appearances which is fantastic numbers given that he's not always um mostly not been the first choice central striker for for Tottenham he's um had to play uh through a couple of international campaigns during that um you know with long distance travel involved to to Korea which is usually extremely hard for players to deal with um and he's got better and better as the season has gone on, so I'm going to be leave myself open to criticism and put Son at centre forward in my team of the year
2: I like like your style Duncan I have to say Um, I've been, you know, I'm always a big supporter of Son as well and um, he has got everything, right foot, left foot, head he will always give you goals and crucial ones at that as well, as we've seen just in the past few weeks Um, so if I were to you know, put a sub into the bench for uh, the great Ryan Sterling, then he would be my choice. Certainly, wouldn't fancy playing against Azard's son and Sterling, would you?
0: <laughs> no, no. But putting son also means you can shout "Go on there, son!" without sounding like your old dad.
2: I think I think you're a wee bit behind the the, uh, the world of newspaper headlines there, John <laughs>
0: <laughs> on, oh. the, on
2: on me, head. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: think was the was the the usual one. Okay, well, we've uh, prattled on long enough. I think that was a uh, fairly legendary by even transfer window podcast quick fire round standards. So I'm going to quickly before you say any more, slam this transfer window shut. Uh, fear not, we're going to be back on Monday to give you what you're looking for in terms of your latest transfer news and football chat. Uh, to continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to speak to me, you can get me at Johnny R. McFarlane, you can get Ian at SG and Duncan, of course, at Duncan Castles. If you like the podcast, do us a favour and pop onto iTunes, give us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. Until Monday, thanks for listening.